Nurses have been essential in combating COVID-19. From their work caring for patients that are hospitalized with severe COVID-19, to treating people in their homes and administering vaccines. But even without a pandemic, it's clear that when nurses are free to fully deploy their expertise and training, they not only improve healthcare quality and access, but can also help to dismantle systemic inequities tied to geography, racism, and poverty that affect people's health. Full Practice Authority allows advanced practice registered nurses including nurse practitioners, to prescribe medications, make diagnoses, and provide treatment independent of a physician. As the largest and most trusted segment of the healthcare workforce, the nation's four million nurses are well positioned to move forcefully to take on health inequities. That was Regina Cunningham, a nurse, healthcare executive, nursing professor, and associate dean at the University of Pennsylvania, reading from the first opinion essay titled, All States Should Harness Nurses' Full Potential, that she wrote with David R. Williams. Cunningham and Williams are both members of the National Academy of Medicine's Committee on the Future of Nursing 2020 to 2030. I'll bring you my conversation with Regina and fellow committee member Marshall Chin after a word from our sponsor. The demands of innovation are evolving faster with each new discovery. At Cytiva, we evolve with you, using flexible, modular solutions to shorten the time to the next milestone and to market. Learn more at Cytiva.com slash cell therapy. That's C-Y-T-I-V-A dot com forward slash cell therapy. Welcome to the First Opinion Podcast. I'm Pat Scarrett, editor of First Opinion, stats platform for articles written by biotech insiders, healthcare workers, researchers, and others with interesting or illuminating or provocative perspectives to share about the life sciences writ large. Welcome to the podcast, Regina and Marshall. Thank you. Thanks, Pat. You know, if it's okay with you, I'd like to set up the conversations with just a couple numbers. Regina, you mentioned that there are 4 million or so nurses in the U.S., which is close to five times more than the number of doctors. As a profession, nurses spend more time delivering patient care than physicians. And year after year, Gallup polls show that nurses are rated as the most trusted healthcare professionals. So why is it that when most people think of healthcare, they think of doctors? That's a great question, Patrick. <laughs> um, you know, I think that... Um... The work of nurses is critical, but often people don't understand what nurses do or recognize the importance of nursing in the healthcare system until they come in contact with it. Um, and once once they do, um, then I think they begin to really understand the power of nursing. Um, and most people's experience with healthcare happens when they have a healthcare problem, um, when they get sick, and so that's when they typically see nurses. Uh, in the system. Nurses are pervasive in the healthcare system, and many people may not be aware of uh, the breadth and scope of nurses' work across the health system across the country. And there's even a 
you know, breadth and scope. There are registered nurses, there are licensed nurses, there are advanced practice. What are, can you describe some of the different kind of, let me call them categories of nurses? Sure, absolutely. They are at all different levels, which can be a point of confusion. So at the most, most basic level, um, there are nurses that are prepared to deliver sort of technical care um, through um, like an associate degree level educational program. Um, and those are often uh, referred to as licensed practical nurse or licensed vocational nurses. Registered nurses are nurses who um, are prepared historically, not at the baccalaureate level, but increasingly at the baccalaureate level. And that's very, very important. Um, so those are nurses who are prepared to sit for the registered nursing examination um, and they carry the credential registered nurse and they can practice uh, in, you know, across the nation based on that credential. Um, nurses who are in the advanced practice category, there are several groups within that context. Those are nurses who have advanced degrees and um, are typically associated with a specialty knowledge. So they will, most of them will have a master's degree. They can um, practice in different areas. Under the umbrella of advanced practice nurses, we have certified registered nurse practitioners, certified nurse midwives, nurse certified uh, registered nurse anesthetists, um, and clinical nurse specialists. So you're both on the National Academy of Medicine's Committee on the Future of Nursing. What's the goal of that committee? So the the Future of Nursing 2020 to 2030 committee was really focused on looking at what the nursing workforce can and should do to advance the health of the nation over the next 10 years. And so um, our focus is really on uh, equity, health equity, and how we can um, utilize nurses in all the various places that they uh, live and work in the health system and in the community. How can we capitalize on all of that wisdom to help achieve greater health equity in this country and to improve the health of everyone, no matter, no matter where they live or no matter what they do? I'm guessing that the 15 committee members were chosen for different expertise that they bring to the table. Marshall, you're a physician and professor of health ethics at the University of Chicago, my hometown. What's your focus as a member of the committee? I'm a practicing general internist. I see patients in the outpatient and inpatient settings. And most of my professional career is devoted to advancing health equity. What can we do to improve the health of all persons and communities in our country? And we see horrendous inequities in outcomes by factors such as race, ethnicity, class, rural, urban distinction. And so what can we do as a nation to reduce these inequities and have every person reach their full potential? You know, I, I often hear physicians credit nurses for their, um, for the physician's ability to survive internship and residency. Do you remember any saves like that when you were a, a young physician? Uh, I was thinking like about a story that like a uh, as an intern, when you do your first intensive care unit rotation, one of the first pieces of advice people give you is like, uh, listen very carefully to the nurse. <laughs> they know what's going on. And so uh, the, the ICU nurses are uh, an intern's best friend. Regina, you started your career as a staff nurse, if I have 
the chronology correct. If you don't mind saying, when was that? Oh boy, <laughs> that was in the late 1970s, actually, quite quite a long time ago. How have things changed for nurses since then? Yeah, I mean, I think definitely we've made a lot of progress in nursing for sure. Um, over that time period, we've made a lot of changes in healthcare, a lot of a lot of advances in the way that we, um, you know, treat patients. I think that uh, the there's been an increase in the um, interprofessional work that that we have done. Um, it was much more hierarchical when I was. Uh, first practicing, I would say we started to really focus more on interprofessional work and teamwork, um, like in the 1990s. And now we really work in teams. Um, I would say that the, you know, a lot of the work that we do is really sort of a, you know, cross-boundary teaming and working together in different teams to, uh, you know, on behalf of patients, on behalf of people. I think nurses have, um, have benefited greatly from that. I think they've been able to use their voices increasingly um, in this context, and um, it has had a positive impact on outcomes. Is that team-based approach widely accepted, I mean, or is there pushback on the whole team idea? I think all clinicians would love to work in a healthcare system that is designed to lead to the best outcomes of their patients and would agree that team-based care is part of that. The problem is the way that we have organized our healthcare system and then the way we pay for and incentivize activities doesn't support team-based care. I mean, basically, we reward volume of care as opposed to quality. We reward inpatient care, procedures, specialty care. We don't value prevention, health promotion, care management, care coordination, addressing social factors, all the things that that, you know, again, any clinician realizes are key drivers of outcomes and would love to have a system that, that does that effectively for patients. So that brings up an interesting point. Um, part of the committee's report and part of the essay, Regina, that you and David Williams wrote talks about full practice authority. Does that get in the way here with this team-based approach? I mean, it, I was looking around the, the American Medical Medical Association has a whole webpage devoted to kind of their victories against um, full practice authority. So there seems to be some real tension here about the future of nursing. Instead of being focused on really health outcomes uh, and, you know, being centered around the patient, it's focused more as a turf war, which is what essentially mm -hmm. that website is is you know uh, demonstrating the one that you just mentioned. It's it's not about a turf war. It's not about how many years somebody has trained to do what they're doing. It's if if we could transcend some of those arguments and focus more on health and patient outcomes. If we could use that as the common ground to guide what we do moving forward, I think that would go a very very long way. There is evidence from the states that have full practice authority that show improved access to care, that show improved quality. And, you know, Patrick, one of the things we should pay a lot of attention to is what came into focus during the COVID-19 pandemic. So very interestingly, as you might expect, the states that had more restrictive practice authority did relax many of those barriers during the pandemic. So this is important. During a time when the 
health of the nation was at great risk. States said, okay, now we can relax these barriers, right? And I mean, I can give you an example from the state of Pennsylvania. There were a lot of waivers um, that were put in place, over 100 waivers in the state of Pennsylvania, four of those related to relaxation of scope of practice barriers for certified registered nurse practitioners. That made a huge, huge difference in our ability to manage COVID-19. In what, in what ways? Well, you know, in, in the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania, we are required by law to submit um, what's called a collaborative agreement, which really governs what the nurse practitioner can do. Um, and everything has to be sort of registered, what medications they can prescribe, what physicians they can work with. That has to all be on file at the State Board of Nursing. The processing of all that paperwork generally takes about three to four months, right? So in the middle of the pandemic, we didn't have to do that. That was critical because if we did not, if we had to wait for that, <laughs> those paperwork changes to be made, we never would have been able to effectively care for the patients in the nimble way that we did. So if you recall, during the first surge of COVID-19 in this country, there was a, you know, it was this very complex and unfamiliar population. Many of those patients required critical care stays. We had to um, surge, build new units, take take native spaces and change them around to create novel units. And many of those were staffed by um, nurse practitioners. We wouldn't have been able to, to be that flexible or that nimble if we had those regulatory barriers in place. It sounds like the whole thing that's been happening with telehealth, where telehealth was just expanded and it was a lifesaver for many. And now a lot of the things that made telehealth expand so easily are being pulled back or being threatened to be pulled back. Marshall, you've been living through, if I'm not mistaken, a time of change in the state of Illinois. I think in 2019, Illinois adopted full practice authority. So have you been able to see how that's changed, how your co you and your colleagues work and how nurses in Illinois work? Well, it's very similar to Regina's experience. So you did see the scope of uh, uh, practice uh, broadening as well as the uh, increased access to telehealth. And uh, again, I think it reflects what the literature has been showing of that increased access to care, particularly for populations that uh, have had trouble with access and in, or in health professional shortage areas. And people have liked it, that there's been increased uh, availability of services and the communities and, and patients like it. So your, your hospital is surrounded by some very poor neighborhoods. And I, if I'm not mistaken, University of Chicago has a, a population of people who traditionally have difficulty getting access to care. Have you seen advanced practice nurses or changes make a difference in access to care in your neck of the woods? I think like we've seen, like uh, we, we clearly it's been a lot of use of telehealth uh, in, in our group. And so that has made a huge difference of improving access. And my understanding of like uh, what we're hearing from the community are the stories then of, of uh, those communities that have traditionally had trouble accessing services that uh, are especially in uh, health professional shorts areas that the increased local regulations uh, practice for uh, nurses as well as the telehealth have improved access to care. The Department of Veterans Affairs has done something interesting with full practice authority. If I believe they if you work for the VA, if you're an advanced practice nurse for the VA, you can work at the 
top of your authority. Has that made a difference in the VA or why did they do that and what's the outcome? Well, I think it's a story of the general theme that, that the reality is that we have a country that has gross inequities and these 80 million folks who are having trouble accessing care. The VA system serves a predominantly uh, group of patients that has high medical and social risk. And just like an area like, like rural health where uh, there are tremendous needs in the population and not enough uh, medical resources, this is an example of a system that is utilizing the personnel to the, the top of, of capability and licensure. I mean, that's another phrase you hear in general, not just in the VA system, but everywhere of you have a more most efficient system when you have team-based care and everyone's performing to the top of, of their of their capability and licensure. And so, uh, you know, there's many primary care physicians and, and physicians that are saying, well, you know, a lot of what we do can be done by an MA or LPN. And so, you know, free us to do the work that uh, uh, that uh, is suitable for, you know, our level of, of training and, you know, have the team-based care so that we can provide the more holistic care uh, that, uh, you know, we would love to be able to provide. So, again, I think it's, it's too narrow a discussion saying, well, you know, specifically neuroscope of practice and all that. It, it really is. How can we design the overall uh, system of team-based care, the overall organization care, and the way we pay for care so that overall as a system and overall as a team, we are able to address as effectively as possible those medical and social factors at individual and systemic levels that impact the outcomes of our patients and communities? I think that's really important. And, you know, we are focusing on nursing scope of practice, but there are many other groups in um the healthcare, many other professionals in healthcare who can contribute in meaningful ways, who also have restrictions on their scope of practice. And so if you think about a total redesign of the healthcare system, something Marshall just said really resonated with me. And that is that primary care physicians say somebody else could be doing this work. That's totally true. I think you have to think about a model where the work is differentiated according to what people's abilities, education, and training are. Because I hear that from physicians not infrequently, that there are other people who could be really helping in doing this work if they had if they had the ability to do it, the authority to do it legally. One of the topics that you touch on in the report is burnout. You know, that's often a focus of conversation about physicians. And I don't think people talk about nurses burning out nearly as much. What kind of a problem is it? It's a very significant problem. If you were to talk to nurses now, after the pandemic, you would find um, higher levels of exhaustion, of compassion fatigue, um, and of burnout higher than previously, but it's not related to COVID-19 per se. It was exacerbated by COVID-19. I think that the problem of burnout in nursing, compassion fatigue, moral distress, these are all issues we talk about in the report. These are not new issues. There has been, um, I think, a, a relatively long history of this, and I think it's an area that we have not paid enough attention to. So employers have not paid enough attention to it. Schools of nursing, educational institutions have not paid enough attention to it. Um, they have just, uh, I would say, um, 
not addressed it in a meaningful enough way. This is a critical, critical factor because you can't give what you don't have. And if nurses are not taking good care of themselves, if they don't have a sense of well-being, they will not be able to do the things we're asking them to do in this report. We're suggesting that they can influence in this report. And we need to start with this very early. So it needs to start in schools of nursing. It needs to be part of the curriculum. And then it needs to be addressed in institutions uh, where nurses practice and in communities where nurses practice. I think like a lot of the early efforts with in general health professional burnout focus on the individual. So, you know, wellness programs and helping that individual. And that's a good part of the solution. But equally, if not more important, is really fixing the system. Because, you know, it's not the individual, you know, that, that's the pathology. It's the system that's the pathology. And so, you know, how can we create systems of, of support and well-functioning care delivery systems so, you know, people don't burn out? And that's uh, both the organizational level, like a hospital or a clinic, and then also then uh, how we as a society then uh, try to have uh, more civility uh, and um, um, less strife and basically, you know, um, decrease and eliminate the, the racism we're seeing as an example. Part of it involves like different institutions regarding nursing schools, hiring entities, doing again the hard inward look for their own implicit and structural biases, whether it's the, the criteria that are being used to hire nurses, uh, how people are being evaluated. I mean, there's all types of implicit biases regarding like, like the, the, the language people use when they're uh, evaluating uh, people of color versus uh, white trainees and all. Also, like once uh, uh, a person of color is in a training program, is the environment and work environment, it gets back to our burnout discussion, uh, set up in a way to be as supportive and to address uh, implicit biases or the hidden curriculum uh, of how like uh, instructors may be uh, referring to trainees or referring to patients of color and all. And so there's a lot that we can do in, in general in the health professions of rooting out some of these uh, implicit biases at the interpersonal levels and then these structural things that we put into place, uh, whether we realize it or not, that create an unwelcome environment. In the report, you wrote that nurses live and work at the intersection of health education, and communities, and that makes them particularly well-suited to help reduce the health disparities that have long existed in the U.S. Can you paint that picture for me? I think that nurses, historically, they've always had this kind of very holistic perspective. Um, they've always been able to see the patient in their context. Um, I think they have been they haven't been as empowered to do things out of the more traditional hospital settings um, historically. But I think that the way that they view patients, and there are many historic examples of this, um, really takes into account all of those factors, where they live, where they work, what kind of issues socially they have, what factors will influence their, their health outcomes. So I, I, I think it's the broad base of the way nurses are prepared educationally around, around thinking about the patient as a person, as the center of what's going on. Yeah, and I just add on that, like, in some ways, that's the, the model, the ideal model for all health professionals. Nursing does a particularly good job of having that as a, a true North Star, of incorporating that in the curriculum, and uh, uh, having... Uh, a range of trainees from different communities where it's part of the lived experience also. 
so in some ways, like um, nursing is one of the fields that comes closest to that ideal. I probably should have made full disclosure at the top of the show, but I'm married to a certified nurse midwife who operates at the top of her practice in the Commonwealth of Massachusetts. And so I have a belief in, um, in, this, in this practice. But one of the things that I wonder about is, um, would, would it be possible to get more people into nursing if nurses were paid better? So I was one of the people that led the paying for health and health equity chapter in the report. And, um, you know, it gets back to the wider question of like, you know, there's actually it's like another paper I've written this is called like entitled, uh, what if the role of healthcare was to maximize health? It's done with a colleague, Alice Chen. Uh, and, you know, again, it gets back to that North Star. What if we truly had designed a healthcare system and payment system that was designed to maximize health, that truly addressed the medical and social factors that emphasize issues like primary care and prevention, health promotion, care coordination, behavioral health, addressing social factors. I mean, these, again, like any clinician, and they'll say, well, yeah, these are the, you know, the key drivers of what affects uh, my, my patient's outcomes. But again, we have a system that's turned upside down where we don't do that. And then as we've talked throughout this hour, nurses play a critical role in addressing these both medical and, and social factors. And so my guess is if you, we had a system that did prioritize health and incentivize and support it, paying for interventions that improve health and reduce health inequities, we'd have uh, uh, you know a, a, a more adequate uh, flow of resources to the types of nursing care interventions that we know can effectively address health inequities and improve population health. What's your one greatest hope for how the field of nursing will change over the next 10 years? Well, I would really like to see nursing as a profession actualize some of the things that are in the report. So beginning to impact health equity through their work. I, and I would, I would tell you, Patrick, that as our committee did our research, not only in reviewing literature, but in the field work that we did, the, the observational research that we did visiting different places and, and uh, seeing programs that nursing had developed and led in different parts of the country, it was totally inspiring. So we know that there are pockets where there is, this is happening now, right? It's happening now. We can see elements of it. We can see evidence of it. I think the diversity in the nursing workforce is a critical component of us getting there unequivocally. So these reports are, you know, incredible pieces of work and they're important. Um, but the more important work is really about what do people do with this information? What do people do with these recommendations? How do they bring this to life to drive the kind of change that we are thinking is so important for this country. So the things that Marshall talked about before in terms of the disparity in outcomes, these things happen from one zip code to the next. I mean, they're, it's unbelievable and very stark and we feel like we can uh, capitalize on nurses. So I'd like to see that. My thoughts are similar to Regina's. My wish would be that the nursing profession truly does adopt these two priorities, reducing inequities, addressing social factors, and then is intentional about the steps to attack those. So we mentioned different fields like clinical care, education, research, administration, policy, 
uh, community, public health-based work, even if people say that these are important areas, equity and social factors, the change isn't going to happen unless nursing and then other forces within the healthcare sector are intentional about prioritizing these as factors that need to be addressed. And so, like Regina, the bottom line is action, and that won't occur unless we truly value addressing social factors, reducing inequities, and unless we are intentional about the specific organizational and policy and personal actions to reach those goals. So I think we should make a date for May 2031 and uh, have this conversation again and see what, see what transpired. Thank you both for joining us today. Thank you, Patrick. Thank you so much, Pat. Thank you for listening to the First Opinion Podcast. It's produced by Teresa Gaffney. Our senior producer is Alyssa Ambrose, and our executive producer is Rick Burke. I love to hear from listeners. Let me know which First Opinion contributors you'd like to hear on the show, or what topics the podcast should take on. You can do that by sending an email to first.opinion at statnews.com, and please put podcast in the subject line. And if you have a minute, please leave a review or rating on whichever platform you use to get your podcasts. That's it for now. Be well during this strange and uncertain time. Thank you.